Welcome to OT Uncorked, where we uncork hot topics in occupational therapy with a bottle of wine. I'm the host, Miranda Donnelly. In today's episode, we're doing another student research highlight. Because of COVID-19, many students didn't have the chance to share their fabulous research projects with the OT community in the ways they had hoped and planned. So I'm giving OT students a platform to talk about their work so we can learn from them. Today I'm joined by Morgan Starkweather, who is about to graduate from the master's program in occupational therapy at Ithaca College in New York. She has firsthand experience as a puppy raiser for a guide dog, and she also talks about how she collaborated with families to prepare for an autism assistance dog, and how she also worked with families to learn more about the influence of these pups on occupational performance of both the handler and the family. But before we jump into the interview, I wanted to share something that's been on my mind lately. I set a personal goal this summer to release an episode of OT Uncorked every other Thursday. But if you look back on my publication dates, you'll find that I haven't quite hit the mark on that goal. So why do I share that? Because today is Saturday, October 10th, and this episode was scheduled to be released on Thursday, October 8th. And clearly that did not happen. But instead of being upset with myself for not sticking to my goal, and I assure you when I don't meet a goal, I am tempted to be upset with myself. I'm just gonna try to be okay with it. I'm going to own it this week because life is chaotic in lots of good ways and in a few challenging ways too. Sometimes our goals need to be adapted as we go. And if you need some more inspiration on this, I do recommend the episode from February 2020 entitled February Growth Goals, which I'll link to in the show notes. I'm taking a dose of my own advice from that episode today by adapting my goal for this week's episode. So whatever goal you set in your life that you feel you're falling short of, I'm in it with you. So instead of feeling upset or guilty or self-shaming, let's just adapt together because really in this time, especially, but always, we're just doing the best we can. And I assure you, that's enough. So now let's get into the episode and hear about some service puppies. Enjoy. I went to Ithaca College in my graduate year. Um, I did the fifth year, the five-year accelerated program, which was really cool and I highly recommend it. Um, I... I'm done with all my classes right now, but with everything going on in COVID, um, I'm just waiting on my second level two fieldwork, which is super exciting. Um, and they're working really hard to get it all set up, but who knows when it'll start with everything. I am from Andover, Massachusetts, which is a little bit north of Boston, and I am super interested in assistance dogs. Um, and it was kind of a side a side interest that I had before coming into school and the OT program. And um, during my time at Ithaca College, I was lucky enough to be able to find an organization that um, had an affiliation kind of through the college or with the college as a, a club, and then was able to incorporate that into OT. Very good. And I'm excited to hear more about the assistance dogs and what that looked like for your project. But before we get to that, I'd love to ask, um, why OT? So kind of when I was younger, at first I was like, I always knew that I wanted to be in the health profession. Um, My mom is a nurse. I knew that nursing was not for me. (laughs) Um, And then I thought, I don't know, maybe PT. I was super athletic. So I had a lot of experience with PT over the years with sports and stuff. Um, But then I decided that I wanted to do more of kind of the community aspect of helping people regain their independence. And that's where I found that OT would be a great fit for me. And I am not one to kind of sit in an office and it's the perfect job to have a change of pace every day, not sit in an office and kind of, you know, Every day is a surprise. Every day is different. And I absolutely love that about OT. And you will soon be an OT. Hopefully you can get those field works um, done soon. But I know that's definitely something that a lot of current grad students are struggling with right now. The, the yeah. plan changed without anyone warning us. 
<laughs> exactly. So, yeah. you know, just kind of rolling with it. I know I'll, I'll eventually get there. Yeah, you absolutely will. And hopefully pretty soon. So today we are talking about your graduate research. And as you kind of hinted in your intro, we are talking about um, the impact of autism assistance dogs on participation and engagement in children with autism spectrum disorder. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. And you mentioned that this is actually kind of flowing out of an interest of yours even before you went to college. So what sparked this interest in assistance dogs? So when I was in high school, um, we I'd had some experience with therapy dogs. Um, I had always had a super like large interest and affinity towards dogs. Never had a dog when I was younger. My dad had had one. My mom was not a dog person, but we also were a very active family. So just, you know, on the weekends and things like that, what would we do with the dog? So we never, we never ended up getting a dog. And then actually, so my dad, my junior year of high school, um, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And when, so then I went to college um, my freshman year and we got a dog. Um, they surprised us. My parents surprised us with a dog. <laughs> yeah, over one of our breaks. And kind of just seeing the impact that the dog had on not only my dad, but also all of us. Because um, I had also come back from school by that point and my siblings are younger. Was It just really resonated with me. Um, and I had always had that interest prior and so it just kind of stuck out and it it just sparked something inside of me um and then we ended up training her to be a therapy dog so she goes into nursing homes and hospitals um and visits with patients which is super fun everyone thinks she's really funny (laughs) (laughs) and that kind of sparked something and just of how that I wanted to incorporate it into my practice eventually. And then when I went back to school, um, I don't know if you've heard of it, but Guiding Eyes for the Blind, it's a pretty big national organization. My sister actually used to raise dogs for them. Oh, no way. So that's what I ended up doing when I got back to school. Um, They had a chapter on campus. Uh, It was part of the Finger Lakes region. So that region happened to be made up of a lot of students from Ithaca and Cornell because both colleges have a chapter there. So I ended up raising a dog named Pepper through Guiding Eyes for the Blind. And she kind of became the OT rep of that <laughs> for a while. Um, so she used to come to all my classes and stuff with me. Uh, and that was really, really exciting. And I actually worked in the on-campus um, pediatric clinic where they have clients from the community come in and like the students have a chance to do treatment sessions and things with them under the supervision of one of the professors. Um, and he had a, one of my clients, he just had an affinity towards dogs um, and it was really motivating for him And one of the challenges of raising a dog in a college campus, as I'm sure you can imagine, is there are not a lot of children to (laughs) acclimate to that your dog used to because, you know, your campus is full of young adults, students, Mm -hmm. professors. Um, So it was a really cool opportunity because I talked to the supervisor um, of the clinic and we kind of decided that we would try having Pepper in some of the sessions because it was motivating for not only the client, but also for Pepper. And it was a great way for her to learn how to interact with younger kids um, at the same time. And so after all of that, um, his family became super interested in pursuing an assistance dog for him. Um, and they looked at multiple organizations, but it's a little harder because there's not a lot of organizations that serve the pediatric population. So eventually they were able to find um, an organization for that trains autism assistance dogs, which was one of his diagnoses. And that kind of 
sparked the inspiration for this project um, and doing an individual thesis because I found it really interesting that there's that there's so many organizations, but the organizations that work with children are few and far between, especially for certain diagnoses. And, you know, you hear about the impact that assistance dogs and therapy dogs can have on all of these different people with all these different diagnoses. But um, one of the things that you don't hear about is the impact that they can have with kids. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I had thought a lot about if this can work as an intervention so well for adults, why can't it work for kids? And that's kind of where I decided to start. <laughs> That's great. And it's um, interesting. You kind of got that experience of seeing how across populations, um, across people, there's just this sort of like universal language that dogs speak and they are communicating, I should say. I love that there are so many organizations that are trying to train and raise dogs um, for specific service purposes. Like I said, my sister used to raise for Guiding Eyes for the Blind and now she uh, raises for Blue Cat. And so I've gotten to see just little bits whenever I'm with her, just of um, what that training process looks like. And it's pretty incredible. Yeah, it's really fun. Mm-hmm. So you studied this in school, but before we get to actually like the research project and sort of that kind of what you did there, I'm curious to know a little bit more, especially for maybe listeners who have never met someone who raises service dogs. What does the training process look like? What's required of a puppy raiser? Um, and even beyond the puppy raising process, so what is what is that whole timeline from when a puppy is born to the time they can actually go into service? Kind of varies by organization. Each organization has their own kind of specific ways um, that they have puppy raisers raise the dogs. And some of that is dependent upon what the dog is being trained for and the services that the dog will provide. So I'm most familiar with Guiding Eyes for the Blind's training process, um, especially with like the puppy raisers and that kind of stuff, just because that's um, who I raised through. But for the most part, they're all kind of, they're similar in ways. But essentially there's three types of assistance dogs. So there's guide dogs, hearing dogs, and then service dogs. So a lot of times, one of the most common things that I find when people, when you say assistance dog, um, most people immediately think of a guide dog. And I think some of that is just because they were kind of the first assistance dog and they're the most prevalent um, that are like commonly seen in communities. So people just tend to be more familiar with them. Um, and there's a lot of confusion between the differences of um, guide dogs and service dogs. Um, so technically, a service dog is a dog that provides a service for the handler. So examples are autism assistance dogs, seizure alert dogs, seizure response dogs, PTSD dogs, and those are all service dogs. One of the other big misconceptions is people get very confused between emotional support animals and service dogs. A great reference and resource for that that I have used a lot in my research um, is Assistance Dogs International. They have a great set of definitions that clearly delineate the different roles and responsibilities of each of the types of dogs because there is not a whole lot of regulatory guidelines and organizations that oversee um, assistance dog training, service dog training, um, therapy dog training. It's all, it's a little bit ambiguous, but Assistance Dogs International is working hard to kind of be one of the organizations to set up guidelines and, um, and, just things so that the process makes a little bit more sense and is a little bit more streamlined and so that people understand the differences. So for guiding eyes, I, so I actually got Pepper when she was eight weeks old (laughs) and I was a puppy raiser. She was my first dog. So 
as a puppy raiser for guiding eyes, your basic responsibilities is to train basic house manners, basic commands, and to socialize your puppy. So for socializing your puppy, that is, it's kind of broad in all honesty, because a lot of people, when you, when they hear the word socialize, they just think of like, oh, your dog needs to, you know, get to know other people and other dogs. And that's kind of it. But actually socialize, um, the term is more of getting familiar with different environments. So, you know, getting familiar with places in the community that people would commonly visit, learning how to interact with other dogs, learning how to interact with other people, learning that when they are on the job um, to listen to and to respond to only their handler and to minimize, essentially to not to minimize like the distractions, the basic commands that I was responsible for teaching Pepper was sit, down, stand, over, which is where she lays on her side with her head down. And that's commonly used mm. in like, so if they're at the vet or something, they can easily kind of look them over. Place, which is where when you point to like a specific designated area, they go and they sit there and lay down. She learned, I'm trying to think, back, which is funny to kind of teach dogs because they naturally don't really walk backwards ever. <laughs> so you kind of teach them to back up a little <laughs> bit, which is kind of cool. They learn stay. I'm trying to think of what other ones I might have missed. They learn how to go to the bathroom on command with a term called get busy, mm-hmm. which makes it easier so that the handler is able to know where they went to the bathroom to clean up after them, which is a really interesting one. She knows heel. And those were the basic ones. Oh, she knows close, which is where you tap the inside of your leg um, when you're sitting in a chair and they come in between your legs and sit there, which is commonly used for like, you know, if you're on like public transportation, you'd have them do a close, then they'd lay down under your seat so they're not in anybody's way different things like that and she also learned touch which is where her she comes and her nose touches my like little fist um and it's used to kind of redirect her and reconnect her to me if she's getting distracted and then she knows a bunch of other commands now because she's already been through um the actual guide training but those were the commands that I was responsible for teaching her during her time with me And how long was her time with you? Her time with me, so she was with me on the shorter side. It's kind of a big spectrum. You know, they can range, the average time that they are with you is like 16 months. Um, It kind of depends, but it can, depending on the amount of dogs in the kennel um, that are in training already, depending on their progress, and they might just need a little bit more time in puppy training before Mm -hmm. they're ready to go, so it's a pretty fluid process and it kind of depends. She was with me for 14 months and then she went into training. She has been in training now since last September. Okay, so September of 2019 is when she went, she, she phased out of um, puppy training with you and into training with the Guiding Eyes? Yes, I'm okay. just sure. Because not this past September. Actually, no, so it would have been 2018. September 2018, she transitioned. Yeah. September 2018, she transitioned. Um, and she has been back at the Guiding Eyes headquarters ever since then. I get to go see her and visit with her, um, which was really great. And actually, um, her and I both lucked out because with everything with COVID, um, they sent a lot of the dogs out of the kennels and back home to their puppy raisers. So she's actually back home with me and she's been here for a while. Oh, that is so sweet. (laughs) So it's a really good surprise for both of us. It's been great having her home. It's been a lot of nice one-on-one time and a great distraction. So that's been awesome. So she was there. She came back mid-March when I is when I picked her up. But up until that time, she completed her guide dog training. There's four phases. Um, and in each phase, they learn a different set of things. And one of the big things that they learn towards the end is like traffic training, things like that. 
and she guiding eyes has a a program and i don't i'm not really familiar i don't think many other organizations have it um i'm not quite sure but it's called specialty training program so it is for applicants can apply and they have a visual impairment plus another impairment disability whatever and it it can be anything and then the dogs after they pass the guide dog training some of them i'm not sure how they kind of choose but some dogs go into the specialty program and then they are trained as a dual role so they know their guide dog training for the visual impairment and then they could also be trained to help the individual with another impairment so um you know they could be trained as a mobility dog and help with briefing for someone who may have um an impaired gait but it can completely depend so currently i have i'm not sure what pepper's specialty role is being trained for they don't you don't find out until um the end so it'll be a surprise <laughs> Very cool. So this is a really long process. And I think that's important to highlight because as you said, I think a lot of times guide dogs, um, here, you said guide dogs, hearing dogs and service dogs often get confused with emotional support dogs and the level of training is quite different there. And so mm-hmm. I think just to show that um, dogs who are working in these service capacities um, and are working, you know, are working with their handlers, they, they are trained for years and years. Mm-hmm. to be prepared. It's like they go to o- the same length as we went to OT school almost, right? Like they are learning exactly. and they are working and they um, are really highly trained assistants, really. So I just, I think that's really important that you kind of broke down that process just to show really how robust their training is. Mm-hmm. Now, just can you give us a brief little overview? There's certain breeds that are used most commonly for service animals. So can you give us a little bit of background on that? Yeah. So, um, just going with guiding eyes, because that's the one that I'm most familiar with, they use, in the past, they used um, golden retrievers. Currently, they use labs and German shepherds, which, so there's less German shepherds on program than the labs, but there has been an increase lately in people wanting to have um, a German shepherd as their guide, so they have recently been increasing the numbers. So those are... Typically, those are kind of pretty common breeds that assistant of assistance dogs. I know sometimes there can be others. I have heard of poodles being used, not as often, but occasionally for people who may have allergies. So sometimes, I mean, I haven't heard of a lot of cases, but I have heard of a few cases where people have had poodles trained to be an assistance dog. I also know the Autism Assistance Dog Agency that I had been in contact with um, for my client. They had had labs and they had had some labradoodles at the time, but they were phasing them out. And a lot of it, it, some of it is just like the drive and the attachments that Mm -hmm. the dogs form and they can be different among breeds. Like one of the families um, had told me that they had heard that the agency was phasing out the Labradoodles because they're super family oriented, Mm. which was a little bit difficult at home because the dog would want to be kind of with everyone. It worked out for them. And that particular dog, they they worked through it and it's fine now and it knows its duties, but just as like a breed characteristic, it's more pack oriented than right. serving the one person. Right. And you mentioned before this idea of being on the job. And I just want to revisit that because I really have noticed with the dogs that my sister and her husband have raised that it's when they put on their vest to show that they were a guide dog in training or now that um, there's an autism assistance dog in training they have. But once the vest goes on, like the dog's demeanor changes. And it was so fascinating to me just to see that transition and take take off the vest and she was in home mode, you know, and they would relax and then we could all approach and, and, you know, pet them and hang out with them. But it was really clear once the vest went on, they were on the job. Um, So can you talk more about maybe how you train that behavior? Yeah. Um, so there's kind of certain 
parameters. So when they're younger, like guiding eyes in particular, they don't get their vest until they're a little bit older. Um, so they do their first walk and talk, which is kind of when you go and you meet with your regional manager um, and you kind of, they look at how the dog's doing. You just kind of have a discussion um, and see if the dog's ready to get their vest. Prior to that, you have, they have like a little bandana that they wear when they're like working or out in public. And I think each dog is a little bit different and kind of when they show that they're ready to mm -hmm. receive their vest around like the time and things like that. Pepper in particular, a lot of the dogs begin to associate their bandana like with work too, like anything that mm -hmm. they have on. So Pepper, once I'd say probably once she was like two months, um, she started to really kind of get the idea of like, oh, I put on the bandana. This means I'm going out in public, mm. but it doesn't necessarily mean like I'm just going for a walk, you know, because I would take her for walks when she was on duty, but then I'd also take her for pleasurely walks mm -hmm. off duty. And so she started to associate that it's not necessarily just a walk or that I'm just going outside it's I'm going out in the community to do my job mm -hmm. and at that point they don't really know their job, <laughs> the right. their job um, but they just sort of understand that okay I'm going out in the community this is where I have to be extra on I have to be paying attention to establish that connection with the handler learn to kind of see distractions but either ignore them or just kind of acknowledge them but not mm -hmm. react to them and each dog is a little bit different with that but they also learn things like okay I go into I go into the store and my vest is on and then I go home and my vest is off mm -hmm. I go into I go to school my vest is on I go home my vest is off and that's kind of how they learn they also learn to go to the bathroom on command so that they're not going in their vest so that they learn like that they're on duty. They have to wait for their handler. That's another big kind of component that helps them learn like I'm working, not working. A lot of times uh, when they're younger, one of the rewards that you can use um, is letting them to sniff things because they're very curious about the world. So <laughs> One of the things that I worked really hard with Pepper on was that when she was working, you don't sniff when you're walking, you walk, you're connected mm -hmm. to me, you're checking in with me, you're looking at me. Um, but when you're off duty and say maybe we're hiking or whatever else, and you've been walking really nice, I'd say, all right, take a seat. And I could tell that you're interested in that. So sit down, listen to me. And once you're paying attention to me, I'll say, go check it out. And then you can go smell it. And that was like, and in, that was an intrinsic reward for her. You know, they're learning about the world. Yeah. They're curious, but you also learn like, you know, I can't just be yanking around, pulling <laughs> to sniff, um, you know, because eventually they will be responsible for walking and guiding their handler. But it's very interesting to see that, especially as they get older, they really learn the on versus off modes um mm -hmm. even now so pepper hasn't been working she's been on a little vacation with this <laughs> COVID thing um but even now like she knows if she's on the long line and she doesn't have her vest on that she doesn't have to really walk next to me or mm -hmm. just a little bit in front of me to guide me necessarily but she can walk feet out in front of me um, and it's not a problem. But as soon as she goes on like the shorter leash and we're walking, she knows that she's supposed to be walking next to me a little bit in front of me. And it, it's incredible to kind of see the reaction. And actually, one of my neighbors has uh, just recently got a service dog. And it's been really interesting to see. I don't, I don't know why this happens, but <laughs> they actually... She's not in her vest or anything, but she seems to know that he is on duty versus the other dogs that are walking in the neighborhood. Like she might show more interest in them, but this dog she seems to know is working. That's so interesting. Yeah, I, I wonder what it is. It's very interesting.
Well, these are really smart dogs. I mean, and that's actually part of the reason why I asked about the breeds, because I know they're really selective, like you said, about breed characteristics, and they need dogs that are going to be smart enough and aware enough to really do these tough tasks, because it is a job for them. It's, it's a lot yeah. of work. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm really excited to hear how you incorporated this interest of yours. I can tell you're very passionate about it, and your work with Pepper has been amazing. So tell us how this transitioned into your research project so kind of once I started incorporating pepper into those sessions that just it really showed me like wow these you can do so many things with a dog (laughs) you know you can use your dog or the dog that you're using in the session as a means or as an end you know we practiced picking up treats and at the beginning, it was just a fine motor task, <laughs> you know, developing yeah. that panther grasp, things like that. But then once we did it later on the next the next year that I saw him, it was occupations as an ends because he was getting his own dog and needed to be able to take uh, the treat out of the pouch. So that was just super interesting to me. And then I found out that the agency that they were working with does specialty commands. Mm. So that was like really that was super interesting and I got really excited about it um because he was a very, he had a very complex case um complex medical background so a lot of agencies would immediately kind of turn him away just cuz on paper he looked very different than when you'd actually see him in person he was a lot mm. more functional in person than his medical record reflected so like he had a wheelchair and a lot of places were like, oh, no, we don't, we don't do wheelchair. Like we don't train them to use wheelchairs, mm-hmm. but he was ambulatory. He could walk. He just had um, an immature gait pattern. So one of the things that they ended up training the dog to do was to walk alongside the wheelchair for when he was using the wheelchair and someone okay. was pushing him. But then they also taught the dog to like walk alongside of him when he was walking which was super cool because autism assistance dogs typically function in a triad instead of a dyad team because usually the child is younger. So the parent has the dogs wearing the vest and the parent may have one leash and the child may have another leash. Sometimes parents have it so that it's one leash and there's like a separate loop for the child's hand to go on. It's really up to the, the family to kind of decide that. Some families also use them for a loping prevention or bolting prevention. Mm -hmm. And so the child may be tethered. So it's like a waist leash on the child. And then the parent has another leash. So that's like just one of the differences. And so those like specialty commands to me was where I really saw that it's a really cool niche for OT to be in because they were kind of asking me like, well, you know, um, what are his movement patterns? Um, He had loud vocalizations. So learning to desensitize the dog to loud vocalizations, teaching the dog some hand signals because they typically use voice commands, but this child used a lot of sign. So teaching the dog to recognize the child's Mm -hmm. sign. Also, the sign Mm -hmm. was a little it was kind of his own sign. It was <laughs> some some signs were ASL signs. Other signs were just signs that he had developed mm-hmm. over the years. So teaching the dog to recognize that so that the child could establish the bond with the dog and give him some commands if he wanted. That was super interesting. Also, the dog was trained to open doors and do light switches for the child. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I spent a lot of time with was going to his house, measuring the distance from the floor to the light switch looking at the types of light switches because it's a lot easier for dogs to turn on and off some types of light switches versus others okay same thing with door handles typically well it's a lot easier for a dog to open up a handle versus a doorknob Mm -hmm. so like going through the house and figuring out do they have doorknobs or handles would they be willing to get handles instead of knobs And then figuring out where we could put door poles, which are just Mm -hmm. like braided pieces of rope um, that you attach the handle for the dog to pull the door open. So like for the refrigerator, Mm -hmm. figuring out how 
and figuring out like the child's height versus where we could put the door pole. So how tall the dog would have to be, things Mm -hmm. like that. One of the other super interesting things that we ended up finding was there was um, a time where Pepper wasn't coming in with me. I forget why. Um, And so I used another guiding eyes dog. Pepper is a yellow lab. This dog was a black lab. And it was almost as if he didn't show as much of an interest. And at first we couldn't figure out why. So we brought the um, black lab back. And he has uh, some visual issues that they're not 100% sure kind of what's going on. Mm. And it seemed to be that he was having trouble recognizing the dog's face and like where the dog was because of the shadows. So the dog was so dark with the shadows and the dog has really dark eyes. So he couldn't pick them up out of his, out of the dog's face versus Pepper is pretty, pretty white. And she has like pretty bright eyes. So they stand out and he seemed able to pick out her like face and her eyes a lot easier which was super interesting and it took us a really long time to figure that out but you know if we didn't figure that out originally I think one of the dogs in the litter was a black lab that he was up for which potentially might not have worked well for him so that's when I kind of really started to see the role that OT could play in working with assistance dog agencies in matching these dogs and starting to train these dogs because each child every individual is just so different and that's super important right and and as OTs we approach that with such client-centeredness and you were in the home taking measurements identifying how can this dog be part of everyday life in this family and how can we create this really great relationship with the dog without completely changing a family's daily routines and environmental setup it sounds like Exactly. And working with them too, another big thing was he has two younger siblings. It's really hard to bring, and they also love dogs. It's hard to bring a dog home that is working for one child. (laughs) Exactly. So kind of giving them strategies and explaining kind of to the kids and they were really great about it. They're really great um, about hanging out with their brother too, and just kind of understanding the dynamic. So that was another big role. And you kind of touched on something else that I thought was one of the most important things. This working with a triad team. So with the parent or the handler and then the child and the dog, you have to match the dog's personalities to not only one person, but to two people, because you have to match it to the child and to the parent. And their personalities might be very different. They could be similar in aspects, different in aspects. And then you also have to keep in mind that you're not giving this dog to an adult who may live on their own or whatever. You are giving this dog to a child who is in a family. And so the dog also has to work for the family and work within the family's daily routines, daily environments, and things like that. So you're you're not only affecting the child, but you're affecting the whole family, which with adults doesn't necessarily always happen. So it's an extra piece of complexity and an extra piece of thought that just has to go into it. Yeah, it's impressive um, and encouraging too, though, that these agencies are trying to match so closely. You know, I really didn't know that was part of the process because it always kind of felt like, well, there's a dog available and here's a handler who, who needs a dog. So here you go. But it sounds like there really is a lot of depth in that process. Mm -hmm. There is. And I didn't realize that kind of going in either. And that's something that I've really learned um, just through raising Mm -hmm. and meeting like guide dog teams, but then also through my research, that's kind of become a big thing that I didn't I didn't think had as big of an impact as it actually does. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about what it looked like to participate with this family in the context of a research project. So what was the design? What was your approach? Kind of, did you have outcome measures? What did sort of that experimental or or case study design look like? So originally I was going to work kind of with the family 
to do the research. I ended up not working with that particular family and using kind of my connections to find a population because it can take up to a year, sometimes even two years for the bond to fully be formed between Mm. the dog, the child and the family. So to do a research study and to figure out the impact, you have to kind of surpass that bonding time. So I wanted to make sure that I got an accurate sample population that reflected that to accurately just get all my results and stuff. So what I ended up doing was I worked with the assistance dog agency I had worked with a client with, and I asked them to help me kind of recruit participants. So what I ended up doing was the president of the organization kind of made a post for me on, they they have like a family page or like family database or something. And I had asked for individuals who would be interested in participating They had to have had the dog for at least one year because I wanted to surpass. I really wanted to surpass that bonding period. And so I had individuals reach out directly to um, me after that. And I was shooting to have three to five participants um, just so that being a master's thesis. And I chose to do an individual instead of a group because I wanted to explore this topic on my own. I ended up having four participants inquire about it. They all had to answer a brief like pre-screening questionnaire to make sure that they fit the um, inclusion criteria. All four participants met it. So then what I ended up doing was we scheduled interviews. Um, We had two semi-structured interviews with each participant. So the participant in this case was the handler. So the parent and all all these, the handler was the parent because the kids' ages varied and, you know, I was having to do the uh, interviews via Zoom because they were all over the country. (laughs) So, you know, um, we wanted to make sure that there were no, like, communication barriers and such. So each interview was approximately 60 minutes. And the first interview was kind of designed to get a basic understanding of how they found out about an autism assistance dog because they are relatively new um, types of service dogs, Mm -hmm. how they found out about a reputable organization, how like how the matching process went and that it was more general information. And then the second interview, I took the information that I received from the first interview and came up with more, more specific questions that were tailored to the family and to the child. They were all open-ended because I wanted to do, um, to make it conversational as a narrative interview and get really good, rich data. So after that, I ended up transcribing all eight of the um, transcripts and the interviews. And then um, I went through and coded them. I used, um, I don't know if you're familiar with um, Creswell's process, his approach towards um, data analysis with qualitative data. I think I have a couple of his books. Okay, cool. Yeah, so that's... Feel free to give us, yeah, just like a brief little overview if you want. Yeah, just because, you know, we learn learn a lot about quantitative data in school, Mm -hmm. and you do learn about qualitative data, but the process is just a little bit different, and there's a couple of different ways to analyze qualitative data. Mm -hmm. So... I used a thematic analysis, um, which is what Creswell outlines. Kind of with the thematic analysis, you look at the raw data and then you organize it and then you read it all through and then you code it. And when you code it, you break it up into themes and to like these description categories. And then you find the interrelating themes and descriptions and then you kind of interpret the meaning. I have read the interviews I couldn't even tell you the amount of times. Right. <laughs> you have to be really immersed in it for this method to work. It requires a lot of deep immersion into yeah. the data. Yeah. And so after that, I came up with some initial like themes and categories. And then my advisor went through them with me also. And then we had two other OTs uh, who were on the faculty go through it with us also. So what did you find? So I found some really, really cool results. So I broke it up into different themes, kind of. One of the the overarching 
concept that I found is the universality of occupational impact that these assistance dogs can have. Mm. I did not realize if you look at the OTPF, mm-hmm. these dogs, not all of them may be trained to help a child or a family with every single domain, but across my sample population, all of the domains were addressed, which was oh, that's so cool and yeah. super cool. So, you know, I had that the dogs were helping with ADLs, so dressing and feeding. IADLs, um, health management and maintenance, they were encouraging the children to go on more walks and things like that, which was huge. I found their role in community mobility for not only the child, but for also the family, which was huge. Safety was a big one. One of the biggest things with safety that I can go into a little bit more after, very interesting to me, was I thought more of the children were going to be tethered to prevent bolting or eloping. Uh-huh. And it was interesting because a lot of the parents also thought that they'd have to have the child tethered. But I'm calling it, my term for it is invisible tethering. Something mm. between the bond and the child that when the child was holding the leash, they knew that the dog was their responsibility and they weren't dropping the leash to elope. So it was the least restrictive environment and they didn't even need to be tethered, which I thought was super amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. And that just creates that opportunity for those kids to be more independent and, you know, their peers may not be tethered to their parents, potentially depending on, you know, especially depending on the age and just to, to be able to sort of belong a little bit more with the people around them and just, Hey, I have, a, I have a dog with me, but it's, um, it's this like bond that they have that also helps them relate to others. I would imagine. Exactly. And that was just, it was so interesting to me because one of the participants went into like huge detail about it, that their son eloped all the time, but he was mm-hmm. older now. So he was 13 and they talked about how have him holding the leash He never drops it. He doesn't bolt anymore. And it's kind of because of the presence of the dog. But they also didn't realize how much more freedom and independence that the child gained because they were always so worried about losing the child that they'd have a tight grip. Not like they'd always be holding his hand or holding something so that he didn't elope. But also now he's 13 and he was taller than his mom. And so she was like, that doesn't look socially appropriate, things like that. But it's socially appropriate to hold a dog leash and sure. you never know that it's be, been used for the same purpose. And a lot of the families said that the biggest thing that they learned by going through all of the training was that the dog should always have a loose leash. Cause you don't want to, you're, you'll cause anxiety for the dog. If you're, if you're anxious, it goes right down the leash and that, you know, that can hinder their performance. And a lot of the families said that, after they got home, they realized how much holding on to their child's hand or trying to keep their child safe was actually affecting them and giving them less freedom. Yeah, that's huge. It was huge. So you conducted these interviews and you gathered all this rich data. What... What maybe surprised you the most? It sounds like there's a few things you've already shared that surprised you. Was there anything else that just, you know, I think the cool thing about analyzing qualitative data is that um, when you do it right, you are going to find surprises. And it's not just to meet your hypotheses that if you're really in it, um, stuff emerges that you, you weren't expecting. One of the things that I think is really cool, the feeding, I did not think that a dog could help someone with feeding. But yeah. The dog, yeah, so it was kind of indirect, but the dog was helping the child stay seated at the table Mm. by either like sitting on their feet or applying the deep pressure or not all the children needed deep pressure, but just giving the sensory input that the child needed to remain seated Mm. was huge. And so by remaining seated at the table, they were able to participate in mealtime more with their families. And one of the coolest things is that when bonding with the dog, you're not supposed to feed them table food, but the child is allowed to feed the dog 
table scene. Oh, that's the only exception because that's a huge bonding piece for the mm-hmm. child and for the dog. So a lot, some of the families were saying that the dog was kind of inspiring the child to try new foods or to eat more because they'd be like, because the child would give the dog, say, say a piece of cheese or like a little bite of string cheese. And then the kid would eat a piece and then she'd give the dog a piece and then the kid would eat a piece. So by elongating the time that they were sitting at the table and attending to the task, they were inherently eating a little bit more anyway, just because they were paying more attention to it. And also just their willingness to try new foods was huge. And a lot of that was because the dog would sit there and model that for them. Oh, that is so cool. I've never heard that um, that experience before, but I know that that's a really big stressful point for a lot of families is mealtime, which is something that's supposed to bring us all together mm-hmm. and be enjoyable. And when you're worried that your kid isn't eating nutritiously or not eating enough, or the kid won't stay at the table for long enough for you to enjoy your own meal, I know that can be a huge stressor. So that sounds like a really... Um, yeah, just a really wonderful gift to that family. Yeah, and the other thing that it kind of ties into the community mobility piece, but was restaurants. So I didn't realize um, a lot of the families reported that going to restaurants was like one of the hardest outings that they'd take prior to having the dog because some of the children would have tantrums at the restaurant, so they'd have to get up and leave. They couldn't sit through the meal at the restaurant um, and things like that. So also seeing the impact that the dog had on improving the family's community mobility to actually go out to eat and to sit and to eat the whole meal at the restaurant without having to leave or to split up was really interesting to see too. And some of that is the dog is able to, the dog's presence, although presence isn't a task, the dog's presence allowed the children to participate in a lot of, in a lot of different tasks and occupations, Mm -hmm. um, almost like a security blanket. And that's something that all of the families reported, that it it isn't a task, but it's the dog's presence that allows the child to participate. Yeah, and just those family activities that people feel like they can't participate in anymore, and that's a loss, and they have to kind of grieve, I think, a lot of times that their family activities just aren't going to look the same if um, it's not a supportive enough environment for the child. And so to hear that, that this, this thing, this presence, this, um, like this just thing that this dog provides, it's maybe hard to even identify fully what's happening there. Um, just that that dog can make more environments supportive and more mm-hmm. occupations possible for families. Yeah. And I just didn't realize the role that these dogs had, you know, a lot of people think it's one role they're your service dog. But one of the things that I really found was that there's like a, they play a multifactored role in Mm -hmm. not only the child's life, but in the family's life. Because by allowing the child to participate in these things, you're now allowing the family to participate in all these activities that they weren't able to participate in before. Either the family would have to split up to do them, or they wouldn't, they just wouldn't do them or try them, or they'd stay home a lot. And so that was really interesting to see. And I feel like a lot of that, a lot of those roles, some of them came from the tasks that the dog was trained to do. A big one was the sensory input. By having the dogs there and to be a tool for sensory input, the child was able to participate, which then correlated to more family outings and things like that. But also kind of the invisible role. So autism or ASD is really kind of an invisible disability. I prefer to use a strengths-based approach um, and that it's more of like neurodiversity, but still it's, it's invisible. So a lot of people are looking at these families and one family kind of said it perfectly. And she goes, it's not like he goes around wearing a t-shirt saying I have autism on it to let people know that he's having a hard time. That was like one of her direct quotes. Mm-hmm. And so I said, can you, I asked her to tell me a little bit more. And she said, one of the biggest things about having the dog is that the dog provides awareness to other people. Mm. Because autism is an invisible disability, the dog is kind of a marker that just says, hey, cut this family some slack or cut this kid some slack because this kid isn't just misbehaving. You know, this kid 
this kid just functions a little bit differently and this may be too stressful of an, of an environment for him or her and that might be you know that might be the issue so because a lot of the families reported that they felt very judged when they were out in public because a lot of people just thought that their kids were poorly behaved and that they were poor parents. And that can be really unmotivating too to go out in public when you feel like you're working really hard as a parent mm-hmm. and you're still being judged. Exactly. It's yeah, a really a hard problem. problem. And just by having the dog, it was like, okay, this is an assistance dog, so something must just be going on. And people would kind of People would still look at them, but not judgmentally. They'd look at them more of like, oh, cool, look, that person has a dog or whatever. That was really empowering to a lot of families and to a lot of children. So that was something that I thought was really, really important to kind of emphasize with the research. And that's just like one way that the dog is helping both the child and the family to participate in these occupations. There was actually one quote, it's a little bit longer, but I'll still read it because honestly, yeah, it yeah. makes me tear up probably every time that I read it. <laughs> one of the participants described a time in which her family was flying home from Disney and the child was knocking on the TV screen in front of him. They're like flying like JetBlue, so they have the little screens mm-hmm. in the seat. And so before the flight had even taken off, the person in the seat that the child was knocking on the screen turned around and he said, do I need to switch seats? And she said, I'm really sorry, you know. And so he must have seen the dog right before he was turning back around. And later on in the flight, the drink cart came down and she said, sir, you know, I can buy, can I buy you a drink for the inconvenience earlier? And he looked at her and he said, no, I owe you an apology and I'm so sorry. And she continued to say it wasn't because of anything other than the fact that he saw the dog that he knew something else was going on. That is so, I know I'm tearing up. (laughs) Yeah. That is so moving. Freedom that dog provided for that parent to not have to explain or feel guilty or, or, you know, feel like a bad parent, but just that freedom to be the great parent that she is and, mm-hmm. and have other people just have a little bit of a glimpse into what's going on um, mm-hmm. and cut her some slack, like you said before. Wow, that is beautiful. Yeah, it just really, I think kind of their role, they just diminish the family's stress kind of regarding the external judgments from other people. Mm-hmm. And it really eliminates the family's need to provide others with an explanation. Instead, it, the explanation's kind of right in front of them, you know? The dog immediately informs others that the child just has has a disability and is having a difficult time, which evokes mm-hmm. kind of a difference in perspective amongst people, and they just kind of become more compassionate and accepting and kind instead of judgmental. We could call these advocacy dogs, too, then. Exactly. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> this whole experience sounds just absolutely incredible, and the opportunity to just see the impact that these dogs can have, I think, is uh, really moving. And you've mentioned some of how you've been able to see OT's place in this process. Mm-hmm. Um, so how has this influenced your growth, though, as someone who's about to be an official OT? <laughs> Um, so I think that one of the things that this has really kind of taught me as an OT is to continue to think outside the box, to try new things, to not be afraid. I was, I'm super excited to be an OT. Um, but I was also like, I'm just a student. I don't think that I can do a thesis. I don't, you know, like, I don't know, this is an emerging area of practice. Like I'm a new practitioner. I I don't know, like really nerve wracking. I don't, I don't think I can do it. I don't think I have the knowledge or the experience or whatever, but I think this whole experience has really taught me that take those risks and be flexible as OTs. That's something that we say all the time is be flexible. And it was not all easy. I will (laughs) be the first to admit that, but it just taught me that there are so many things that you can learn from one experience that you don't expect to learn. Kind of like when you asked me earlier about this, what surprising things did you learn? 
I did not think I was going to learn all of these things. And I think that translates over to my future work as an OT. You know, I've really learned how to advocate for OT in emerging areas of practice, you know, especially because you learn like your little elevator pitch of what is OT in school, (laughs) because not everyone knows it. And having to kind of come up with an alternative elevator speech of like, what is OT in the whole grand scheme of things besides your simple ADLs? And how can OT relate to all of these other disciplines mm-hmm. where a lot of people don't know about OT was right. inspiring and challenging. Good. Well, I think we grow sometimes the most when we're challenged. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like you've had a lot of growth. And I, you know, this idea of being able to justify OT's role in emerging practice areas is huge because I think we're just seeing that more and more as people start to really understand the value of OT. um, We're going to be just in new settings. I'm just so excited to see over the next couple years, even over the next decade, I have a feeling that OTs will be prevalent in settings that we've never seen before, that we've never been part of. And it's really exciting to see that you've had that opportunity even now as a student and to feel really empowered to advocate for OT's role. I think that's a great skill. So before we wrap up here, I like to ask guests if they have any book recommendations because I love to read and this is sort of my curated reading list. So (laughs) is there anything that you um, recommend? I actually did. This is um, not a book that has to do with this at all. But I took a an early intervention class last semester and we did a book club as part of it and it was really cool so the idea was that the professor picked out I think there was like four or five options so one of them I think directly touched on OT but most of them kind of indirectly touched on OT and then we had to come up with like a treatment plan and things like Hmm. that and the book that I choose to read was Room I don't know if you've read it or heard of it I have I read it wow I loved it. That is a powerful book. Mm-hmm. It oh. is. It's a powerful book, I think, in general, if you were to read it not even as an OT. Yeah. And then shifting it and reading it as an OT and then coming up with a treatment plan. And it was really powerful to see that the the role that OT could have. I don't want to give away the book, so I'm trying to figure out how to to say it. But just kind of the role that OT can have with trauma. And it's huge. And I think, you know, um, even the role that, like, OT could have with, like, initial trauma, like, more of, like, first responders or things like that, it kind of, it made me think of some of that potential. Oh, that book is so good. And you know what? I I have a hard time reading novels that talk about really hard traumatic things that people go through because I feel like there's enough of that in the real world and as an OT you know I think a lot of us um, have very like open hearts and very are very empathetic and so hearing about what's happening in the real world is kind of enough for me Uh, and so reading fiction that talks about severe trauma is hard for me but what I found really interesting about Room is that it's written from the perspective of the child Mm-hmm. And so you see, even amidst trauma, just the childlike innocence. And you know what's really happening, right? Because we're adults and we see how tainted mm-hmm. the world is and, and we know what's happening, but we get the descriptions from the perspective of the child. And I think that made that more of an accessible book for me, but also just heartbreaking at the same time it was interesting that you said that because that was one of my favorite parts about the book because I, I'm kind of similar with you on I wouldn't probably have picked that book on a bookshelf mm-hmm. um and I actually I was driving back from school it takes me six hours to get home from school <laughs> so um I'm not a I'm not an audio person I had never mm-hmm. listened to an audiobook in my life but I was like, all right, I'm going to try this on. I'm going to try this on audio, kill two birds with one stone. And I definitely recommend listening to the audiobook because they have an actual child. Oh, wow. Reading the book. So 
as it's in the child's voice, you're listening to a child and then it changes when you hear like the mom's perspective and things. And mm-hmm. I think that was, that was really powerful. Um, and I think it even enhanced, it, it enhanced the whole message, the whole story and things sure. like that. I loved our conversation today and I feel like I've learned so much more about assistance dogs and just the the impact they can have and that um, these dogs go beyond even what we observe when we see a service dog in public, um, but just that these dogs are well integrated into the family and really support individual and family occupations. Um, so thank you for sharing your research with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I loved um, kind of being able to share it and having this conversation with you. Okay. Well, before we go, because it's OT Uncorked, what were you drinking today while we talked? Well, my favorite, since I go to school in Ithaca, is always the Finger Lakes wine and the wine trail. There are some good options. <laughs> um, I love Lucas Vineyards. Uh, tonight, mm-hmm. I was drinking their sangria. I also really like their tugboat red and white. All right, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, the Finger Lakes has a lot of great vineyards. I haven't gone um, up there to do a tour yet, but my grandparents used to live up in the Finger Lakes, um, so I need to take a visit back there, I think. Yeah, I think you should. I definitely recommend it. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Morgan, and I will put your contact information in the show notes in case anyone wants to reach out with further questions. Perfect. I'd love that. I'll answer any questions people have. I hope you enjoyed this episode and learning about service dogs. Don't forget to check out the show notes for more resources or reach out to Morgan if you're interested in being a puppy raiser or if you think a service dog would be a good fit for one of your clients. She is happy to share what she has learned with you. If you have a chance, pop over to Apple Podcasts and please consider leaving OT Uncorked a review and or message us on social media. We want to know what you like and what we could be doing better. Also, sharing a review helps other OTs find our content a little bit more easily on Apple Podcasts and other podcast players. Thank you so much for listening to OT Uncorked. It is always fun to sit down with you and uncork OT with a glass of wine. Cheers. Cheers.